Well, hey, good morning. We doing well? Good. Do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. Thank you for um, making it out to church. I'm ready for, you know, fifth winter to end and to finally get some better weather, but we'll have to keep praying for that, I guess. Um, If you've been with us this spring, you know that we have been in a series studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've been going through that book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and last week, my dad wrapped up the uh, book of Ephesians. He preached the last half of chapter six in his PJs, remember that? And uh, I will just say that there are some things he runs by us before he does them, and then there's other things he does not run by us before he does them. Uh, Last week would fall in the latter category, so I'm sorry about that. I had no control over that decision. Um, So here's where we're at. We finished the book. And uh, we have two weeks left before Easter. And so we're actually not going to stop with our study of Ephesians, but we're going to do something cool the next two weeks. Um, This week, we're going to see a passage in the book of Acts where we get to uh, visibly see the Ephesian church in action. And then next week, we're actually going to hear a letter that Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. So to kind of wrap up this series, we're moving from reading through the book of Ephesians to seeing the church in action, which is great. And here's what I would say. Um, this is one of my favorite kind of messages to preach because we're going to be in a passage that I bet you most of you have never read before. It's not super familiar, but as I studied it this week, it was like, wow, this passage is amazing and it's powerful and it quickly became one of my favorites. And what we're going to do, which is interesting, we're actually going to see in Acts 20, Paul say goodbye to the Ephesian church. So Paul has been with the church in Ephesus for three years. He planted them. He was their pastor, their leader, their church father, and he gets called by the Lord to go back to Jerusalem. And so he's got to say goodbye to this church that he loves dearly. And I think we have so much to learn from his interaction with the Ephesians in Acts 20, right before he sails off to leave them. Look at verse 17. I'm just going to read verses 17 through 38. It's a longer passage, so just follow along as I read. Here's what it says. It says, And now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, and that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, but that I only, I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples away after them. 
Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, they knelt down and prayed uh, with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right, so there's a lot in those verses. I'm actually a little out of breath just reading that, but here's what I want to do. I want to give you a big idea that's going to focus our time together. It's this, Um, two foundational elements in a healthy church are truth and tears. That two foundational elements in a healthy church, if we are to be a church that God calls us to be, if we're going to be a place where God is glorified and lives are transformed, we have to be a place where the truth is present, but that has to be accompanied with tears. Look at verse 36 again. It says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, even being sorrowful most of all, but the word that he had spoken, that, he, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Do you see how sweet that moment is? Like, can't you just picture or feel almost tangibly the love that Paul had for that church and the love they had for Paul and, and the love they had for one another? It's like this story with Paul and the Ephesians ends with everyone kneeling on the ground, praying to God and just bawling their eyes out and they're hugging and they're kissing and there's tears that are flowing and they're like, we're going to miss you. We're never going to see you again. And they walk together with Paul to send him off to what God has for him. And when I see this picture, I'm like, how do we get this as a church? How can we be a place where our relationships are so close, where the love is so present and tangible that that there is embracing and tears and love that is present in our church? Well, the truth is the way we get there is through truth and tears. And so what I want to do is I want to start by talking about why the truth is so important in a healthy church. Look at verse 20. It says this, he says, He talks about when he came to them, he goes, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See what Paul's saying there? He's like, listen, when I came to you, I told you the truth. I was honest with you. I preached to you. I taught you both in public and from house to house. I didn't shrink back from telling you what was true. And in these few verses, we learn four things about the importance of truth in a healthy church. Here's the first. Um, Truth is central to the gospel. Truth is foundational to Christianity. I mean, church, you have to understand this. Christianity is founded on truth statements. Jesus, he made statements that were truth statements. He came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's either true or it's not. Jesus is a liar or he's Lord. 
right? Jesus said, I am the Father, are one. Jesus told the disciples, I go and I prepare a place for you that you need to go and make disciples of all nations. Christianity, our hope is rooted in the historical, truthful resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus actually, physically, miraculously rose from the dead after really being dead. It's all based in truth. If you don't have truth, you don't have Christianity. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine um, you look outside and um, all of a sudden your next door neighbor, they, they've draped the, the flag of Denmark over their home. They've got a massive Danish flag over their home. And then when you're taking the trash out, you run into him and he starts greeting you speaking Danish. And you're like, dude, Joe, you were speaking English like three days ago. What's going on? And he was like, hey, haven't you heard? Um, United States, we're in some debt trouble. We've got some financial issues. So we just sold Michigan to Denmark. We're all part of Denmark now. We're all Danish. What would you say to them, him in that moment? You'd be like, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> that, that, that's not true. Well, no, no, no. I really believe and feel like we're from Denmark now. You'd be like, well, I don't care about what you feel like or what you think is true. We're living in reality. We're not Danish, right? Truth matters. Listen, truth isn't relative. There's objective truth, and Christianity is founded in truth. And look at what specifically he's talking about when he says the truth. Look at verse 21. He says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about repentance and faith in Jesus. What Paul's saying is, is I told you the truth about yourself. I told you that you stand guilty before God, that you are a sinner and that outside of faith in what Jesus has done for us and God's love for us, all of us stand condemned before God. He goes, I was honest with you about yourself. I told you the truth. You know, it was funny, I was talking this week with a guy who lives out of state, and uh, he's in the process of transitioning out of his church, and, and he said, you know, my wife and I had a conversation when um, we knew it was time for us to leave our church when our daughter brought home uh, the homework from children's ministry, and, and we were like, hey, honey, she was in second or third grade, how'd children's ministry go? And she goes, it's great, I got some homework, and they're like, what's your homework? And, and she said, well, I'm supposed to tell myself that I'm awesome 20 times every day. And the guy that I was talking to was like, the problem is, is that's not true. Like, I don't want my daughter to find her worth or believe that God loves her because she's awesome. The fact is, is that her heart is wicked and, and she's full of sin and she needs to look to Jesus Christ and his awesome uh, life and his perfection and his love for her. He goes, it's not true. She's not awesome. Right? Turn to your neighbor and just tell him you're not awesome right now. Right? It's not true. Christianity asserts itself as eternally and always the highest form of truth, which leads us to the next thing about it. Um, the truth is always offensive. The truth is always offensive. You see it in verse 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. Right? The fact that he has to say that he didn't shy away or shrink back insinuates that the truth carries an offense. He's like, I wasn't scared. I wasn't afraid to say what might offend. I didn't shy away, I was bold. Well, the reason he says that is because you don't need to be bold in the first place unless what you're saying is offensive. Listen, Christianity has been an offense 
to every culture in every time period since Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And there's a reason for that because Christianity is not a product of a time or a culture. It's supernatural and it is an offense to every culture. Back, you know, 2,000 years ago, Christianity was an offense to the Roman Empire because Christians wouldn't assert that Caesar was God. The Romans believed that Caesar would elevate to the level of a supernatural being as the leader of Rome. And the Christians were like, no, you're not God. Jesus is Lord. He's the one ruling and reigning and our allegiance is to him. It was an offense. 2,000 years later in America, uh, Christianity is still an offense. It's not the whole Caesar is God part that's an offense. We're an offense to our culture when it comes to marriage, sexuality, and family, aren't we? That if we assert a biblical view on marriage, sex, and family, people look at us like, well, you're just backwards, and that's crazy, and that's offensive to me. And what's amazing is, is if you go across the globe, if you go to the Middle East, people there actually align with God's word more on marriage, sexuality, and family. It's not as offensive to people there. What's offensive to them is the idea of forgiveness, right? Because in the Middle East, it's a shame and honor society. So if someone disrespects you, if someone hurts you, if someone brings shame on your family, you never let that go till you get even because your family's honor is on the line. So the idea that you would turn the other cheek or forgive or love your enemies, they're like, we have no category for this. It's always an offense in every culture. The exclusive claims of Christianity, right? How many of you have heard the argument, well, I just think if I grew up in India, I'd be Hindu. So how can you say that there's only one way that it's only Jesus? Some people grew up and never heard about him. Have you guys heard that argument before? Um, Here's a really interesting rebuttal to that. Why is Christianity the only world religion that has flourished on every single continent? It's because it's rooted in truth. Christianity has flourished in Asia and in India and in Europe and in South America and in North America like no other religion. Every other religion tends to stay in its cultural, geographical region. Christianity has set fire over the course of the world. Like we are believing in something that started in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. It's because it's supernatural and it's true. And that creates an offense. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. Like, listen, church, if you're going to live with a bold witness for Christ, I have no way to uh, protect you from the offense your life is going to create in certain occasions. Here's the third thing you need to know about the truth. It's this. Um, It's constantly attacked. The truth is constantly attacked. Jump down to verse 28. He says this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which with the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and to care for the church of God, which he attained uh, with his own blood. Look at verse 29. He says, for I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Do you see how certain Paul is that this is going to happen? He's like, I know when I leave what's following. He's like, there's going to be fierce wolves. There's going to be people who even arise from among you who are going to attack the truth of the gospel and try to lead people away. If you read any of Paul's writing, his number one concern is that the churches that he planted would get wrapped up into false teaching because the truth is always under attack. Right last week, my dad in his message was talking about how one of the greatest dangers we have as Christians is we don't realize that there's a battle going on. 
And just like it would be incredibly dangerous to be wandering around Ukraine today, unaware that there's a war going on, it's just as dangerous for us to be living the Christian life, not realizing that there's an attack on the things of God and his word. So what does that look like today? Well, can I show you two really popular ways this plays out today? Um, these are, this isn't in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I wrote two things that we need to pay attention to today. Um, we need to beware of the gospel message that minimizes or eliminates repentance. This is happening right now where it's, hey, let's talk about God's love. Let's talk about how much Jesus loves everyone. And let's just miss the whole part about us repenting and making Jesus Lord and turning to him as Lord of our lives. Now, church, here's the problem. There's a fine line we have to walk. Does God love everyone? Yes. Can God meet anyone at any place? Yes. Is there any sin that is too far away from God that he can't redeem and restore? No, all of that's true. But we also have to remember that the very first words that Jesus spoke in Matthew when he started his earthly ministry was the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus came and said, we are not right before God. We have to make ourselves right before God through Jesus Christ. Repentance is acknowledging our sin, confessing it to God and being honest about it and turning from that sin. And and church, here's what I would say. There is no entrance point to any relationship with God that doesn't begin with repentance. There's no salvation, there's no heaven, there's no new life without us first coming to a place where we acknowledge our rebellion and our sin before the Lord. I read a book about six months ago um, from a a pastor and the pastor was close to my age. And so I kind of wanted to read and get his perspective and it was kind of his manifesto on following Jesus. And uh, it was a great book. He's an incredible writer. 99% of it was amazing. He talked about pastoring. He talked about spiritual disciplines. He talked about prayer. He, he talked about discipling people. It was really, really well written. My only problem with it was he wrote a book about following Jesus and never once mentioned sin or repentance. The good news is not the good news until we hear the truth about the bad news. And then here's um, a second thing to be aware of. Be aware of theology that attacks the clarity and the authority of Scripture. Be aware of theology that attacks the clarity and the authority of Scripture. Do you remember the first attack on God recorded in the Bible? It's from Satan, the serpent in the garden, talking to Eve. Do you remember what he asked Eve? He goes, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden? He is questioning the authority of God's word, and he's twisting it. Any theology that drives towards confusion or the gray. I don't think we can really know what God's intentions were. I don't think the authors were on the same page as God. Is it really possible that we maybe have evolved past what God's word might say? Any type of theology that would question the authority and clarity of God's word, we need to be careful of. If we're going to be a church that honors the Lord, we need to be committed to holding high the authority of scripture. And church, I would just ask, pray for your pastors and elders as we seek to do this because there is attack that comes with that. Okay, here's the fourth thing about the truth, which you need to see, is that the truth is given both publicly and individually. Look at verse 20. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. 
Do you see how, how, how the ministry would work in Ephesus is that the people would gather together in large groups and Paul would teach them in public, in, in large group gatherings. But then ministry also happened in house to house, home to home. And I was so floored when I read this because it's like, man, it's almost like our small group ministry is biblical, huh? Do you, do you see it? It was happening both in public and individually. And church, let me just say this. Look at me right now. It's really easy to hide in this church. Do you know that? Like, especially y'all on the balcony. Like, the lights are shining into my eyes. I can't even see you up there. It's easy to hide in this church. And we have four services uh, in two locations on two different days. And it's easy to just come in and come out and to not be known and to not know people and to hide. Piece of advice my dad gave me once, which I think is so right. He goes, Cal, the worst form of communication is emails and texts. He goes, if you ever have to have a hard conversation with someone, go have it face to face. Don't do it over text and don't do it over email. And here's why. Because you can't read tone. You, you, you don't know how people are saying things when you just get it in written text. He goes, the second worst way to communicate is over the phone. Right? Because over the phone, you can hear the voice and you might be able to pick up on tone, but you can't read body language. You can still hide how you're really feeling you know, when, when you're on the phone with someone. Like you've been on the phone with someone and they say something and you're rolling your eyes while you answer, right? But you can hide that because they can't see you. A good way to, to get to know someone is meet with them face to face. Because then you get to look at them eye to eye, you get to read their body language, you get to hear their tone. It's how you get to know someone. You wanna know an even better way to get to know someone than sitting down with them face to face? Do it um, routinely, week in, week out, go to their home, do life together. It gets really, really hard to hide. It's not impossible. People are really, really good at hiding, but it's way harder when you're committed to building relationship where you are with one another on a consistent basis. Like I have friends in my life who they'll come into my house and they'll just be like, Cal, what's wrong? And I'm like, I didn't even say anything. How did you know? And they're like, we can just tell by your countenance. We know you so well that we know that there's something going on. We see it all over your face. They know me in some ways just as well as I know myself. And that's healthy. And what Paul's saying was it wasn't just publicly but we gathered together in homes and we needed the truth of God's word into our circumstances and into our lives. And we prayed to each other. There was a closeness there because there was a commitment both to gather publicly and individually. The truth has to be elevated. It has to be something that it's not just that I do, but that we all do to one another. But church, listen, there also has to be tears. Did you notice all the time in this passage where Paul talks about crying? Like there's crying all over these verses. In verse 19, Paul's like, when I came to you, I came with humility and tears. He says it again in verse 31, that when I ministered, I admonished all of you through tears. And then at the end of the passage, everyone's kneeling, everyone's messy crying, they're snot running down their noses, they're hugging, they're kissing, even the dudes are giving each other bro hugs and kissing each other on the cheek and everyone's weeping. It's like my wife when she watches a chick flick, there's tears all over the place. Why are tears so vital to healthy churches? Well, there's three reasons. Here's the first, because the gospel frees us from having to hide. One of the reasons why this has to be a place where tears occasionally flow is because we have to be people who don't hide from one another. The gospel frees us to not have to do that. Look at verse 19 again. 
or 18, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials and all that happened with me through the plots of the Jews. See what Paul says? He's like, when I came to you, I was honest. I didn't try to impress you. I, I, I didn't try to sell you anything, but I was humble. I was honest. And I told you when things weren't okay. He's like, I told you about how difficult my life had been. I told you about my fears, my worries, and I ministered to you through tears. One of the things I love about the gospel is that it tears us down to the absolute studs before it rebuilds us back up. Like like church, you know that the gospel says some pretty awful things about all of us, doesn't it? It says that all of our hearts are desperately wicked that we most of the time are the biggest issue in our lives. Our misplaced hopes, our idols, our our attitudes, that oftentimes we are our biggest issues. That we are, again, desperately wicked, that we have turned away from God, that that left to ourselves, if it was between following our glory or submitting our lives to God, we would choose ourselves every day and twice on Sunday. But in spite of all of that, that we have received the most amazing transformative love the world has ever known, that God has pursued us, that he's made us clean, that that we are righteous in him, that he has changed our hearts. He's given us a new spirit that lives within us and it is a life-changing experience. But it doesn't matter how successful you are or how much people like you or how attractive you are or how well your family looks put together there's this truth that none of us really have it all together. So here's the question. If we really believe that, who in here do we actually need to impress? Right? So if we really believe the gospel, I can be free to be like, hey, what the Bible says about me is true. I'm not doing great right now. And I've got some attitudes that are are really, really messed up and, and I'm not wanting to follow the Lord and life is difficult and I'm freaked out and I'm struggling to trust him right now and I'm scared and I'm nervous and I need help and I need people to pray for me. I don't have it all together. Church, one of the greatest markers of spiritual maturity is actually being able to put your hand up and say, I'm not doing well right now. And here's what scares me. There's some of you in here I can see it in your eyes. You're like, I'd never do that. I've got to keep up the facade. I'd never cry. I'm a macho man that could never happen with relationships with other Christians. And I just need to ask the question, who are you trying to impress? What are you hiding from? The gospel frees us from having to hide. Here's the next reason there's tears in the healthy church. It's simple. It's because suffering is painful. It's because suffering is painful. Look at verse 22. He says this, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's like, what I'm walking into is not going to be pleasant. I'm about to suffer, and you're going to suffer too, because I'm never going to see your face again. He was honest with them about what was coming. And it says that one of the reasons that they were so broken up and crying and weeping is this would be the last time this side of heaven they would ever see their pastor ever again. And they're suffering through this pain together. All right, so there's three quick things I want to say about suffering. Here's the first thing. Um, You need to understand that suffering is part of our sanctification, that God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. 
Do you see Paul says it right there in verse 22? He says that he is walking into suffering because the spirit is leading him there, right? He's not saying that this suffering is pointless or worthless or he's being punished for anything or it's because God doesn't see or God doesn't care. It says that actually God was authoring the suffering he was going to walk into as part of what God had for his life. You know, it's funny in our culture in secular humanism, suffering serves no purpose. Suffering should just be avoided at all cost. If you have a difficult job and you're going through a difficult season, just quit. If your marriage is rough, bail on the marriage. If a friendship breaks down, it's all right. You can just block them on Instagram and move on with life. There is no purpose to suffering. But Paul says, no, no, that's not true at all. In fact, suffering, Paul often, when he talks about it in scripture says, I am sharing in the sufferings of Jesus that I am uniting myself with Christ as I complete his sufferings and share in his sufferings. Paul's saying your pain points in your life, everyone in here right now has certain pain points that they're living in, that that is not wasted, that God knows about it and he is using it to draw your eyes to Jesus and to make you more like his son. God doesn't waste a moment of our lives. Here's the second thing about suffering is that suffering often isn't fair. It's just not fair. Like think about why Paul was suffering. It's not because he's sinning. He's just being faithful to God. He's planting churches. He's being a witness. He's telling people the truth and he's gonna be lied about. He's gonna be imprisoned. He's gonna be beaten. And he knows he is on a death march. It's just not fair. And I love what he says about it in verse 26. He says this. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Do you see where Paul is setting his eyes? He's thinking about how can I stand before the Lord, not before my accusers. He's like, listen, I am innocent of the blood of all because I was faithful to do what the Lord called me to do, even if I'm being accused and lied about and slandered and imprisoned. His mentality was vertical. Can I ask you a question? Who in here has been lied about? This should probably be all of us. Raise your hand if you've been lied about. It's painful, isn't it? And in that moment, when you're lied about, everything in you wants vindication from the people that were lying about you, right? It's like, I want them to say that they lied. I want everyone to know that this didn't happen this way, that this isn't true. We want to defend our reputation to others. Paul's like, I have no ability to do that. But I can rest at night because I know that I'm innocent of the blood of all and that ultimately God is my judge and he is going to reward me for my faithfulness. Listen, sometimes suffering, most of the time, it's not fair. So we need to put our hope in the God who does see and who does reward. Because if you're living a life where you try to make everything fair all the time, you're just going to live a frustrated existence. Then here's the third thing about suffering. Um, Suffering doesn't always resolve I wish I could tell you that the suffering you go through is going to have a Disney storybook ending. Oftentimes it doesn't. And man, I could tell you stories about people in this church. I could tell you stories about people in my small group right now who are going through suffering. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's financial. And part of being in a small group in relationship with them is being like, I have no ability to solve this for you. There's nothing you can do to fix it. There's nothing I can do to fix it. So here's what we're going to do. We're gonna continue to meet. And we're going to pray and we're going to cry and we're going to seek the Lord 
and I'm going to text you to make sure you're doing okay. And, and when you're not doing great, I want you to reach out to your brothers in Christ. And we're just going to go through this together and wait on the Lord as long as it takes. It doesn't always resolve. That's why there's tears. Then here's the third reason there's tears. It's because the Holy Spirit binds us together. The Holy Spirit binds us together. I love this picture of everyone at the end of this passage huddled around Paul, praying in tears, weeping together. And and I don't know if you're like me, but when we get near Easter, I I really start to think about the last moments of Jesus Christ. And, And this picture of Paul and these Ephesian elders huddled and praying together, it reminds me of a story right before Jesus died, about 24 hours before Jesus died. Do you remember he went and prayed and he called his best friends to come with him, right? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he, he was really, really distressed. So he gathered his friends and he's like, hey, I need you guys to pray with me. Will you pray with me for an hour? He's so distressed that, that he is sweating uh, drops of blood. And what did his friends do? Do you remember? They fell asleep. They abandoned him. So I see this picture of Paul surrounded by faithful friends united by the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, when Jesus needed that, his friends abandoned him. And then 24 hours later, he would be abandoned by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and what's amazing is that Jesus went through abandonment of everyone that loved him and everyone that he loved so that we could have these relationships that are bonded and united through the Holy Spirit. Listen, we all share the spirit of God because of Jesus Christ. And by the way, how are relationships formed? Any friendships? They're based on what we have in common, right? So if you're in here and you're into woodworking, I would bet that you have other friends who are into woodworking and you guys every once in a while get in a shop and do woodworking things together, right? Obviously, you can tell that's not my thing. I don't even know what you guys do in there, but it just, okay, cool, have fun. Some of you in here are sports fans. Guess what? You probably have other friends who you watch sports with and you play fantasy sports with and you talk about and share articles and that's what you do. Like our relationships are formed out of what we have in common. Well, the bond of Jesus Christ is a bond that is stronger and transcends age, race, stage of life, even the Michigan-Michigan state rivalry, right? Like the bond of Jesus Christ allows me to love my friends who bailed are in spring break in Florida right now while we're having fifth winter in Michigan, right? I can still love them. But listen, here's what's amazing. If I share the same bond with someone in Jesus Christ, I don't have to have anything else in common with them and I can still love them and care for them and be fiercely united with them because our hope is the same. So what's the result of a church that's full of truth and tears? Well, we see it in the text. It's deep and meaningful relationships, right? And I'm just drawn to that picture of the church kneeling and weeping and crying together. And it's like, man, that's what I want for our church. That's what I want for our small groups, that we're a place where the love of Christ is so present and tangible that this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. So I want to close by asking you a weird question. I like to oftentimes close with a question to get us think, thinking as we go home. Here's my question this morning. Who are you close enough to cry around? It's been an interesting question for me this week. Like, are there people in this church 
who you are so bound to, that you are so close with, that you are so tight with, who know you so well and you know them, that you can raise your hand and say, hey, I'm struggling, I need prayer, and that you can cry with them. You know, it's funny, if you're part of our church, you know what happens at the end of every service. We're about to close with a time of worship. Um, One of the pastors will come up and give some announcements and then he'll close the service by saying, hey, we have pastors and elders up front. If anyone has anything to pray about, we'd love to pray with you, right? This happens every week. And, And what's amazing is almost every week, I will have someone come approach me at the end of the service. Sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't know them. And they're coming up for prayer. Something's going on in their life where they need to pray. And as they approach, I see it happen. Their eyes start to water and they get emotional and they start to cry. And then you know what happens immediately next, almost every time? They apologize for it. They're like, I'm so sorry for crying. I'm so sorry for getting emotional. And I'm like, why are you apologizing for that? That's exactly what we want this place to be. Church should be the first place that people who are suffering are like, man, I need to get there because there's gonna be people who love me and point me to the truth and can cry with me. We as Christians, we should be the first place people in our lives who are struggling know to go to because we're going to meet them with truth and grace. So my question is, is are you hiding here? Or are you modeling what we see for us in scripture in Acts 20 of a place that is marked with truth and tears? Who are you close enough to cry around? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for um, just the testimony uh, of a church that is loving you and and loving others well. God, I pray that for us. And God, I know that there's so many people in here this morning who, who live this out so faithfully. Thank you for that. God, I pray that we would grow in this. I think there's always room to grow in the areas of truth and tears. God, may we be a church that's faithful. May we be a church that elevates your word, but may we be also a church where um, lives are transformed and people are loved well, and we walk through the suffering of life warmly and kindly together. Would you help us with that? We need you, we love you. We're so thankful that we can be united and tied together through the Holy Spirit, which has been so richly given to you through Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.